It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A hundred points. Do you know how much that cost us in sponsorship dollars? Well, with, with all due respect, Mr. Dennett, I had no idea you'd gotten experimental surgery to have your <laughs> removed. <laughs> what, did you, what did you say? What, did that, what was that? Well, I said with all due respect. That, no, that doesn't mean you get to say whatever you want to say to me. It sure, sure as heck does. No, no, it doesn't it's mean that. It's in the that. Geneva Convention. Look it up. That's from the movie Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. And it's a line Fifth Circuit Judge James Ho referenced in calling out the claims of a dissenting judge who said he was writing with all due respect but then used a quote from Macbeth about the sound and fury of idiots. Both pretty mild put-downs compared to a recent opinion of Ninth Circuit Judge Lawrence Van Dyke, who wrote a concurrence to his own majority opinion, dripping in sarcasm about his liberal colleagues. These are just the latest examples of the sniping and politics spilling into judicial opinions in the circuit courts. Joining me is Ross Guberman, a legal writing coach who has taught classes for new federal judges for a decade. So, Ross, Judge Van Dyke wrote a majority opinion which found that a closure of gun shops due to COVID was a violation of the Second Amendment. Then he wrote a concurrence to his own majority opinion in anticipation that the full circuit would reverse his decision. How unusual is that? So he did something I can't remember seeing before. So this is, as you said, a Second Amendment case, so it's a high-profile case. So he was sort of assuming that the case was going to go on bonk, and his concurrence to himself basically tried to write what he thinks the majority will come up with. So he wrote an opinion, you know, going the opposite way from what he wanted. But then what he did is he had all these footnotes and thought bubbles with a very kind of snarky, sarcastic tone essentially claiming that anybody who supports this particular California gun regulation was just completely making things up and had ulterior motives, almost like to put them on the defensive before they've even had a chance to rehear the case, sort of show that you can have a lot of what he would probably say kind of gobbledygook standards and quotations from case law, and then makes a very strong suggestion that they were slimy, 
for lack of a better word, and we're going to sort of make up the law in order to uphold the gun regulation. It was dripping in sarcasm, I'd say. In the past, he's accused his colleagues of engaging in mischief and jujitsu, compared them to a sullen kid who spits in the cookie jar after being caught red-handed. What's the point of this, do you think? To get attention? One thing I'd say is he's absolutely not the only judge alive or past who's used any of that rhetoric. I mean, it's all a question of degree, right? And also context and substantive points in question. As far as why he's doing it, I mean, obviously I can't speak for somebody else, but he's a very new judge on the Ninth Circuit. You know, his nomination was controversial. I think he, uh, the ABA found him not qualified, although many people argued with that conclusion. Uh, he's certainly very smart. I mean, he's got a great academic credentials. But he's a new judge. He's in that sort of Federalist Society group that most of President Trump's judges came from. And he's sort of signaling, you know, we are on to what the liberals, he'd probably call them, or Democrats are up to. He's signaling that. But he's also, you know, here we are discussing his concurrence in a case that people probably wouldn't be talking about at all. He's certainly wanting attention, maybe the attention of people who might one day nominate him for the Supreme Court. It might be that he wants the attention of other judges who are like-minded and kind of tell them, you know what, I just did this and I was really purposely snide and sarcastic. Maybe you should too. So it's probably some combination of all of the above. I mean, I guess we should also take him literally and seriously. It may be that he's just in his mind appalled. He thinks that judges are in a bad faith way upholding gun regulations that he would say violate the Second Amendment. Maybe he is actually just genuinely really, really upset or distraught about it. Do you think it hurts a judge's credibility to have opinions that are sarcastic, that hurl insults at their colleagues on the bench? It's a great question. I don't think it has a really, really easy, obvious answer. So one thing is there's two different ways judges are sarcastic in opinions. The main way tends to be towards the counsel or the argument, kind of implying that an argument was preposterous or ridiculous. So a shot at the lawyers themselves. It's certainly much rarer, although Justice Scalia was known to do this from time to time, it's rare to take pot shots at your colleagues. So I would first say there might be different credibility issues depending on which of those universes we're in. Is it really just about the lawyers or the case, or is it about judges? So in this case, it was certainly about judges, and it was like a preemptive strike. So at this point in, I think, American legal history, a lot of judges are probably just hoping to have credibility with the like-minded, right? They're not maybe so much as in the past worried about general credibility. I mean, there's a lot of tribalism going on in our country, as you know. I don't think they're immune. So maybe for his purposes, it makes him more credible with people who see the law the way he does. And just because I know a lot of judges, I've trained them and I'm friendly with them. A lot of people loved it. I mean, a lot of judges thought it was great. Other judges thought it was appalling. And they might not see the sarcasm the same way that I might. They might see it as warranted and effective. I guess it depends on who you want credibility with. Fifth Circuit Judge James Ho's opinions have also gotten a lot of attention. In one opinion that I spoke about at the beginning of the segment, he and Judge Jock Wiener were carping at each other. Doesn't that affect their relationship on the bench? And these judges have to work with each other for years. There's no doubt about it. You're absolutely right. I know you're right because I hear these things in my work. Judge Ho is on the Fifth Circuit. That Fifth Circuit is notoriously tense with different factions of judges not being overly fond of other factions. You know, there's stories about even Supreme Court justices having tensions. Traditionally, there's been a line they won't cross 
you know, I think Justice Scalia you know, kind of famously made a crack about Justice Kennedy in uh, about Burgerfell about putting a bag over my head. I think since then, not that I'm saying it's Justice Scalia's fault in any way, shape, or form. I mean, it's just a lot of people try to copy him. Since then, it's been, I think Judge Ho's probably a good example as any, it's been pretty common to have kind of name-calling and a little bit of playground, kind of kids fighting on the playground rhetoric, one judge to the other. I think what you're describing from Judge Ho, I mean, the Fifth Circuit's had a lot of splintered opinions where you have, you know, one of these, like, I'm concurring in Part 2B, uh, <laughs> but not the seventh word, and you now 3A. So one thing I know from getting to know a lot of judges is they really are just like the rest of us. You know, they don't like people taking shots at them. Yeah, of course it causes tension. I suppose if you ask them, they would say, that's not the most important thing to me. You know, having like everybody get along for the Christmas party <laughs> is not as important to me as, you know, whatever my vision of the Constitution is. You mentioned Justice Scalia, who was known for his brilliant writing style, fiery dissents. Do you see the kind of flair that Justice Scalia had? What I think people have forgotten is that 99% of what Justice Scalia wrote, including in this dissent, was not was not in the potshot category, right? It wasn't in the snarky, pure applesauce, quote-unquote, category. So I think what some of these newer judges are doing without realizing it is they're sort of copying those barbs that Justice Scalia would use, but they don't really come across as well or as effectively because the rest of the opinion isn't quite as strong. I mean, Justice Scalia sounded genuine, whether you liked it or not. It was like his voice. And these seem a little bit more like a pastiche or like, I want to have everybody talk about me, the way people talked about Justice Scalia saying pure applesauce. He also, of course, had the stature. So Justice Scalia, even among his foes, was just going to get more deference when he was a justice for what he would do in writing than some of these judges who have only been on the bench for a couple of years. And sometimes, you know, it's like anytime there's somebody new, you know, the new kid on the block, sometimes they sound, I know just from what I hear, so other judges who have been on the bench for a while, they sound a little foiled or cocky, right? Like, okay, I've been doing this for two years and I now know everything and I'm going to just show the rest of the circuit where they've gone wrong. So you call it performance art in the circuit. How so? Explain that. They're not really in the moment operating as a normal federal judge. They're playing to an audience. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. And people tend to dislike it mainly when it's with a judge they don't agree with ideologically. I mean, a lot of justices and judges engage in, you know, rhetoric or they have examples or metaphors or turns of phrases that are clever, witty, at least they think they are. But in this case, it's not like a brief moment of performance art. It's like an entire concurrence to a concurrence of performance art. So again, it's changed. They're now thinking about audiences. Maybe it's somebody in the White House. Maybe it's somebody on Twitter. They're thinking about audiences besides the official audience for a federal judge was supposed to be the party, the council, the other lawyers in the jurisdiction, and perhaps if you're influential enough of a judge or on an influential court, law students. You're supposed to be thinking about those groups, but now they're thinking about, hey, what are they going to say about me on Twitter? Are there judges on Twitter? Well, some judges, like Judge Dillard from Georgia, he's on Twitter, the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. I know she's on Twitter. I think they're quite careful in what they say. They're fun to follow, but they're not controversial. There actually are quite a few judges and justices, I can tell you, who are on Twitter under an alias. They absolutely follow. I can tell you for sure 
they absolutely follow what people say about them. And I have to say, these attention-getting opinions keep things interesting, as opposed to those opinions it's just so hard to wade through. We, the lawyers of America, are hypocrites on this, because if you ask people, they always say, like, judges should be somber and serious. They have a lot of power. But again, if you go back to Justice Scalia and you say, what are some quotes you remember from Justice Scalia? Everything you will hear will be some kind of snark, sarcasm, pot shot, criticism. People secretly love this stuff. They say they hate it. They might intellectually hate it, but I hate to tell you it works. And I think Justice Kagan's probably the greatest living legal writer, lawyer, or judge. But the things that people associate with her are actually the very few things I don't think are that great. Like citing, you know, making a making a reference to the TV show V. I know people think that's really clever and like populist. I love 99.9% of every word she's ever written. That's the last thing how I would ever put on the list, right? So if you're a judge and people are saying, oh, it's so inappropriate to use this snark, but then in real life, what people seem to applaud are these little barbs or cute pop culture references. You're going you're gonna to see the split and do what people actually seem to like as opposed to what they say they like. Thanks, Ross. That's legal writing coach Ross Guberman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. These news laws may not require us to count how many jelly beans are in a jar, but modern-day voter suppression is no less pernicious. Representative Terry Sewell is the only black person serving in Congress from Alabama. The state is currently represented by one black Democrat, Sewell, elected from the state's only majority black district, and six white Republicans elected from the state's heavily white districts. That's even though about 27% of Alabama's population is black. So a panel of three federal judges has ordered the state to draw new congressional districts, including a second district with a substantial number of minority voters. Alabama is appealing that decision to the Supreme Court. Joining me is Rebecca Green, professor and director of the election law program at William & Mary Law School. Rebecca, explain this decision by the panel of judges. The case comes up under the Voting Rights Act, something called Section 2, which is designed to ensure that minorities have the ability to elect their candidates of choice, or put a different way, that state rules and laws don't stymie the ability of minorities to elect their candidate of choice. One way that states have done this historically is by the way they draw their lines in the redistricting process. And so what they can do is they can pack minority voters into a single district, thereby take their voting power away in in surrounding districts. Or if there are concentrations of minority voters that would be able to elect their candidate of choice, the line drawer could draw a line like in the middle of that concentration of minority voters in order to diffuse or dilute their ability to elect their candidate of choice. So redistricting has been a vehicle that states have used in the past to harm minority political strength. And if you look at the U.S. congressional map in Alabama that plaintiffs challenged under Section 2, they did exactly what I just described. At least that's the allegation, that they packed minority voters into a single district in one part of the state, and across the way, on the right-hand side of the state, they cut a line down, a concentration of minority voters. And the allegation is that violates Voting Rights Act Section 2. 
And so this three-judge panel of federal judges, which included two appointees of former President Trump, said voting in the challenged districts is intensely racially polarized. This is not genuinely in dispute. Is that correct that it's not in dispute? Yes. So what they're referring to is an analysis that is required under Section 2 vote dilution litigation. The first part of that analysis has to do with whether the minority community is sufficiently large and geographically compact to qualify for protection under Section 2. And then the second two prongs of that analysis require the presence of racially polarized voting, meaning that you can look at how minorities vote and you can, first of all, decide that they're politically cohesive and that they would vote for the same candidate if given the chance. And then the other piece of that is that the majority voters consistently vote to defeat the minority candidates of choice. And my understanding of the data is that it is a racially polarized voting climate. What were the court's instructions to Alabama about redrawing the map? Basically, the state's map has only one majority minority district out of seven, despite the fact that there are almost 30 percent of black voting age population in the state. So it's skewed against minority voters for that reason. And so the command to comply with Section 2 is to draw a second majority minority district. What was interesting to me is that the panel refused to put its decision on hold while Alabama appeals to the Supreme Court. So that gives the legislature until Monday to draw a new map. In the meantime, the panel is working on a backup plan? Yeah, so I think the urgency here is that the panel of judges here thinks that the plaintiffs have an incredibly strong case and that the arguments the state was making to defend its maps were exceptionally weak. And one of the arguments that the defendants of the state made here was essentially that by prioritizing race for purposes of complying with Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, that would be a racial gerrymander. In other words, if you create a second majority minority district, it would effectively be prioritizing race over everything else. And the reason why I think the court found that to be such a weak argument is that if you couldn't comply with Section 2 without violating the Constitution, then Section 2 would be unconstitutional. And, you know, that plainly the lower court judges weren't willing to do. In other words, they were taking it on faith that Congress has the power to enact Section 2 and that plaintiffs can vindicate those rights. So Alabama is appealing to the Supreme Court, as I said, and it argued that the injunction will throw state elections into chaos and require the state to draw districts based primarily on race instead of other factors. What do you think of that argument? So that's sort of what I was just alluding right. to. They're reacting to this idea that they should be prioritizing race in their line drawing when that's sort of a strange argument given that since the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, and particularly since it was applied to line drawing, vote dilution cases, that's what states have been required to do all along. And in fact, you know, obviously, Alabama has been a losing defendant on many redistricting cases since the Voting Rights Act was passed. So to complain that they are being forced to comply with the Voting Rights Act by taking race into account as it requires, um, is sort of a strange argument, because that's not anything new. So will the Supreme Court hear the case? Yes, there's mandatory jurisdiction for the Supreme Court in statewide redistricting cases. 
So unlike other cases where the court can decide or not decide, here the court will take it for part of the reason that you were suggesting, which is that, you know, redistricting cases are a unique type of case because elections happen and you can't delay decisions because elections have to happen. So I think you can expect that the Supreme Court will weigh in one way or the other here. And how much will a decision by the Supreme Court enlighten us about how it's going to look at other similar challenges And we're expecting other similar challenges, aren't we, in the run-up to the next election? Yeah, there's been a couple of instances where states are kind of being very assertive about wanting to draw lines from a colorblind perspective. And I think what's happening there is they are wondering whether there are a majority of justices on the court who would be open to the idea that using race in redistricting violates the Constitution. And so I wonder whether they're sort of taking this path because they want to test that out. Is it correct to say that the Roberts Court has been cutting back on voting rights? I think it's correct to say that the Roberts Court has been putting pressure on Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, for sure. I mean, you can look at redistricting cases in the last decade where the court made clear that it would require states to comply with the Voting Rights Act. So it's not like they've been inching towards repudiating it wholesale. In fact, Justice Thomas has been one of the only justices who's taken that line very firmly and consistently. That is that Section 2 is unconstitutional. So I don't think it's fair to say that there's been you know, a drumbeat by a majority of justices of the court to do away with it. And if you look at the decisions over the last 10 years, the court has certainly recognized that plaintiffs can vindicate rights under Voting Rights Act Section 2. Let's turn to to Pennsylvania. And a Pennsylvania appellate court struck down a law that allows no excuse absentee voting. Explain why it struck down that law, what its reasoning was. Yeah, so this this is kind of an interesting set of circumstances. So in 2019, the um, Pennsylvania legislature, on a bipartisan vote, passed legislation to enable no-excuse absentee voting. And the legislation itself, I think it was 180 days that you you could bring a challenge to it, and no one brought that challenge. In fact, it wasn't until after the 2020 election when all of a sudden you started hearing this argument um, that that law was unconstitutional, at, at least with respect to the state constitution. And basically the argument is that the state constitution requires that voters vote in person, um, and that therefore the state legislature lacked the ability to pass its absentee voting um, legislation, um, because what it would have had to do is essentially first uh, amend the state constitution. But the trick is that the, the state constitution doesn't actually anywhere say that you have to vote in person. Rather, it says that um, it's uh, uh, talking about how um, a qualified elector has to establish residency 60 days before an election. And the the word in the Constitution, the words in the Constitution are uh, in the election district where he or she shall offer to vote. And so the, the argument that the Republicans are making is that the offer to vote language suggests that you're offering in person to vote. Um, which is a little bit of a stretch. It doesn't actually say that um, in the Constitution, but the but the argument anyway is that the the legislature couldn't pass that law because it would first about absentee voting because it would first have to um, amend the Constitution to to make it clear that you could vote remotely. 
Judge Hannah Levitt wrote, No excuse mail-in voting makes the exercise of the franchise more convenient and has been used four times in the history of Pennsylvania. Yet they went on to say you had to amend the Constitution. Yep. It seems odd to say that and then... It is odd. I I think it is is odd um, because they also said, they also acknowledged that there was a 180-day period to challenge the law. um, And yet, you know, plaintiffs here waited until after an election had passed when voters relied on that law to challenge it. And so, so it's even odd to me that you would even accept this, um, this case so, so far into the future. But in any event, um, even aside from that, um, it, it is, you know, pretty incredible that the, that the court, um, you know, so long after the legislature acted, um, it is kind of using this very vague language in the Constitution um, to, to say that the, the legislature overstepped. Some of the Republicans who voted for the law are part of the group filing this lawsuit against the law. And so the five judge Commonwealth Court split along party lines with three Republican judges agreeing with the Republican petitioners and two Democrats dissenting. So the state is going to appeal to the state Supreme Court where Democrats have a majority. Is the state Supreme Court likely to reverse the decision of the five judge court? I'm not a betting person, but um, but if I were, I would probably <laughs> think that that would that would be the outcome. You know, looking at all these cases in different states across the country, where voting rights are being restricted or redistricting is eliminating minority constituencies, it seems like it's an assault on democracy. Well, you know, I believe very firmly that. There's a huge amount of agreement in this country that all eligible voters should be able to cast a vote. And I also think there's a lot of agreement that that vote should be free of fraud and should be secure. So I think at a very basic level, we all agree what the basic ingredients are um, for our democracy. I mean, I also think that, you know, while it's certainly the case that states around the country are constricting, you know, access to the ballot in ways that make people upset and angry because they see it as politically motivated. It's also the case that it, it remains very easy to cast a ballot, you know, relatively speaking um, today than ever has in, in the history of this country. For example, many states have lots of um, avenues for early voting and many states have, you know, more looser uh, absentee voting policies and, and so forth. And so I think you know, I think it's easy to sort of think that, you know, democracy is in a downward spiral. But I think um, if you if you kind of go back to the basics, um, I think there's a lot of reason for people to have faith in the com- and confidence in the process. OK, Rebecca, we'll end this segment on a hopeful note. That's Rebecca Green, a professor and co-director of the election law program at William and Mary Law School. You know success when you see it or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The heirs of a Holocaust survivor may be on the winning end of a Supreme Court case over Nazi looted art. An 1897 painting, Rue Saint-Honoré, Afternoon Rain Effect, by French Impressionist Camille Pizarro, is at the center of the case. It was stolen by the Nazis in 1939. The painting is currently on display at a Spanish state museum in Madrid. Joining me is M.C. Sangaila, head of the appellate practice at Buckalter. In the Supreme Court oral arguments, there really wasn't that much discussion of the saga of this painting. And what was the argument about? Well, there were some observations. I, I believe it was Justice Gorsuch who observed an argument you know, that it might be time to bring this litigation to a close, given how long even the litigation has lasted, which has been, uh, uh, gosh, you know, coming on uh, 20 years, I think. So. Um, and that's not unusual for a uh, Holocaust art recovery case, which which does tend to drag on for a long time with a lot of threshold legal questions like the ones here, even though this case uniquely actually already went through an appeal on summary judgment and went through actually a bench trial on certain points. We're back to threshold questions, which is choice of law. Which law do we use? to choose the law that applies substantively in this case, and whether it's federal law, federal uh, rules governing choice of law, or state law, that is California law, that determines which substantive law applies in this case, you know, could matter very greatly because of how those substantive laws view uh, adverse possession. So in California, you can't get good title from a thief, so... There would be uh, clearly some positive developments in that regard uh, for the claimant, for the family who is seeking the piece of art. In Under Spanish law, however, there is open and obvious possession for a certain amount of time can lead to an adverse possession claim. And so that is how the foundation won in the district court was Spanish law applies using 
federal law that. And the, the family said, no, we need to use California law to assess which choice of law to apply because we have California claims here. We have California state claims brought in federal court, uh, but still state law claims and state choice of law should govern. So those are the pretty discreet question that the Supreme Court was considering. And based on the questions and the responses and the comments and oral argument from the justices, it does appear that the court may be poised to provide you know, yet another victory, a rare victory to heirs in a Holocaust art case, again, in a case that's founded on the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act in terms of being able to bring a, a foreign entity to court in the United States. So, but it's going to be on a very narrow, you know, very specific ground. California state law and not Spanish law should govern the threshold choice of which law to apply. To clarify, in California, you cannot get good title if it's a stolen work of art. Spain, Correct. You, but in Spain, you can. Or do any other factors matter in Spain? Well, there are other factors in terms of how long you've held it, whether it was available to be found out during that time frame, but that's definitely um, an avenue that's possible under Spanish law that just doesn't exist under California law. Tell us about some of the issues the justices were interested in. But there were a couple of things. First, you really the intersection of the substantive state law and federal law in the case. So it's a unique beast, this particular case. It's a, a case that's brought in federal court because the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act allows uh, foreign entities and, and governments to be sued in U.S. courts. That would be U.S. federal court. But the claims that are at issue are state law claims, basic conversion and trespass under California state law. So it's a state law case, but it's brought in federal court because of the Federal Sovereign Immunities Act question. And so the court was asking questions around, well, okay, this is really a state law case. So shouldn't we have a common approach to cases involving state law that applies to everyone, whether or not they're specially brought here because of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act or some other act? So they're struggling with that, saying we want to have a common ground of decision under the Sovereign Immunities Act, as we would if there were any other kind of state law claim that might be in federal court, and not treat the threshold question of choice of law different because of the type of defendant we have in the case. On the other hand, the foundation was arguing, well, it is a special kind of case because of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, and therefore we need to be treated as we would expect to be treated in federal court, because that's what we expect when we're brought into court under the FSIA. So there were these two dueling questions. It appears that the California choice of law will end up governing, in part because the court, members of the court expressed concern about applying a different rule to a Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act defendant as opposed to other kinds of defendants that, that might be in federal court. If we're going to apply state choice of law rules to state law claims that happen to be in federal court, that should be the same no matter how they came to this 
support, whether it was diversity or the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, because that's what the foundation was arguing for. There needed to be some kind of special view of this case because of how it came there. But it really seemed to be a manageability question and a, a common thread question that the Supreme Court was looking at in terms of we want to treat, we want to have a clear expectation and a clear way in which we treat state law claims in federal court, no matter how they got here. So that seems to be the, to the extent there was any tussle, that, that was the one that was going on within the court. And it seemed, from the questioning at least, that they seem to be leaning towards uh, having a uniform workable rule that just doesn't depend on the defendant's status for how they determine which choice of law to apply. A lawyer for the foundation said the Supreme Court should set out a fair and balanced way for federal courts to approach these kinds of cases because different states have different legal tests. And Chief Mm -hmm. Justice Roberts said, welcome to the United States. That's how the courts work. And a private citizen of the United States who moves from New York to Ohio, the law that applies to him is going to change as well. So how would it work? If you go into a federal court, they're going to apply the law of the state that you're in, according to you know what you think the court's going to do. Yes. So I think they'll say, okay, yes, there are California claims. The plaintiff is the Californian. And so it's California state law and California choice of law that applies to California state law claims. I think what Justice Roberts was talking about there was this sense that, yes, okay, whether there's an expectation about whether and where you can be hailed into court as a, as a foreign entity into the United States, that may be governed by the, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, and it tells you you can be hailed into federal court. But then once you are in our court system, you are then governed by our court system. And how our court system works for every other kind of defendant is that uh, when there are state law claims, then you're going to use the state choice of law analysis to assess those. So that's um, that's where Chief Justice Roberts' comment was coming from. Yes, welcome to our court. <laughs> was there any difference in the way the conservatives viewed it from the way the liberals viewed it, or were they all on the same basic page? Yeah, it, I mean, it was a remarkable argument in that there, there were some quiet thoughts and it didn't seem to be questions came from too many different directions there were a lot of questions getting getting to the same uh point that that justice roberts was making and also that clearly the the um members of the court were concerned about making some kind of special rule for a certain kind of defendant or a special rule in this case they wanted something that was workable and predictable for the courts themselves to implement and um, and not have some special carve-out for sovereign immunity defendants. So it seems that there were, the questions were in alignment. They seemed to be coming from the same general perspective in terms of having a workable rule and uh, maybe leaning in favor of the, the state uh, choice of law approach instead of federal common law. And in that regard, the questions might have come with slightly different, a slightly different flavor to them, but it did not appear to be a vast divide between the the different justices, depending on their, you know, perceived political leanings. Uh, Let me ask you this. Suppose the Supreme Court says 
All right. The plaintiffs win here. California law applies. Do the plaintiffs really win or does it go back to district court and there has to be a trial or more motions? Yeah, it goes it goes back to the district court. The the question I think also that was very interesting was that a significant amount of the questioning towards the end was focused on figuring out what that would look like and what whether closure was possible in the short or longer term. I know that there were, um, and that's unusual. I mean, the court usually is saying, I'm just going to decide the case that's in front of me. I'm just going to decide the issue and then we'll remand it with directions and the case will carry on. But there seemed to be a fair amount of questioning in addition to Justice Gorsuch's saying, you know, can we perhaps bring this to closure? What that might look like upon remand, what would the scope be? What what more would there be to do in this case, or would it truly be put to bed in short order? And it was clear from that discussion that, you know, the foundation is definitely planning to live to fight another day and was even arguing that under California choice of law, that still Spanish law should potentially apply, uh, to which there was, you know, a fair amount of questioning about that. Uh, from a couple of the justices who said, well, you're fighting awfully hard about this. We can't imagine that it, you don't think it might make some difference, depending on which choice of law is applied. Can't see exactly the same result, or you wouldn't be spending all this time on this question. So certainly you think there might be a difference, or we wouldn't be here. And then there were also some discussions of potential other arguments that the foundation might raise, including due process. And I believe it was Justice Gorsuch who mentioned, uh, well, at some point after 15 or 20 years, maybe you've waived any additional um, procedural arguments that you might have, and perhaps we can, you know, get to the merits and get to closure on this case. So from from that discussion, it's clear the court is curious about that, and also that to the extent there's an ability to continue to, to fight over issues, the foundation certainly will do so. MC, we've talked before about these Nazi looted art cases at the Supreme Court. Would this be the first one, if things go as you anticipate, where the heirs of the first owners who had the art looted would actually win? Well, it's a rare, it's a rare victory for sure. I will, you know, Maria Altman's case would be the last one that, that I know of that had a similar win in the uh, foreign sovereign immunity context for a Holocaust art heir. So it's definitely rare, and it's following in the Altman case footsteps, which was now several years ago. Thanks, MC. That's MC Sangaila of Buckalter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. 
Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.